The Old Covenant reading for this morning is taken from the book of 2 Samuel. 2 Samuel chapter 7, beginning at verse 1. We'll be reading through verse 17 this morning. The word of the Lord. Now when the king lived in his house, and the Lord had given him rest from all his surrounding enemies, the king said to Nathan the prophet, See now, I dwell in a house of cedar, but the ark of God dwells in a tent. And Nathan said to the king, Go, do all that is in your heart, for the Lord is with you. But that same night, the word of the Lord came to Nathan. Go and tell my servant David, thus says the Lord, Would you build a house for me to dwell in? I have not lived in a house since the day I brought up the people from, of Israel from Egypt to this day. But I have been moving about in a tent for my dwelling. In all places where I have moved with all the people of Israel, did I speak a word with any of the judges of Israel, whom I commanded to shepherd my people Israel, saying, Why have you not built a house of cedar? Now therefore, thus you shall say to my servant David, Thus says the Lord of hosts, I took you from the pasture, from following the sheep, that you should be prince over my people Israel. And I have been with you wherever you went, and have cut off all your enemies from before you. And I will make for you a great name, like the name of the great ones of the earth. And I will appoint a place for my people Israel, and will plant them, so that they may dwell in their own place, and be disturbed no more. And violent men shall afflict them no more as formerly, from the time that I appointed judges over my people Israel, and I will give you rest from all your enemies. Moreover, the Lord declares to you that the Lord will make you a house when your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers. I will raise up your offspring after you who shall come from your body and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. When he commits iniquity, I will discipline him with the rod of men, with the stripes of the sons of men. But my steadfast love will not depart from him, as I took it from Saul, whom I put away from before you. And your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. In accordance with all these words, in accordance with all this vision, Nathan spoke to David. Here endeth the Old Covenant reading. The New Covenant reading is taken from the Gospel according to Matthew. The Gospel according to Matthew chapter 1, beginning at verse 1. We'll be reading to verse 17 this morning. I do want to remind you, and it's news to some of you, that the policy of the session of this church is that every four years we will go through one of the Gospels in morning worship. Part of the reason why we do that is we want young people who are growing up in this church in those very formative high school years, during that period, to have the life, the work of Christ laid plainly before them. Of course, it's good for all the rest of us as well. 
And as your pastor, I've already had the privilege of preaching through the Gospel of Mark and the Gospel according to John. This morning we're beginning the Gospel according to Matthew. And if you're still here in 2030, Lord willing, either Pastor Silas Shryack or I will have preached through Luke as well. The Gospel according to Matthew chapter 1, beginning at verse 1. The word of our God. The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Abraham was the father of Isaac, and Isaac the father of Jacob, and Jacob the father of Judah and his brothers, and Judah the father of Perez, and Zerah by Tamar, and Perez the father of Hezron, and Hezron the father of Ram, and Ram the father of Amminadab, and Amminadab the father of Nashon, and Nashon the father of Salmon, and Salmon the father of Boaz by Rahab, and Boaz the father of Obed by Ruth, and Obed the father of Jesse, and Jesse the father of David, the king. David was the father of Solomon by the wife of Uriah, and Solomon the father of Rehoboam, and Rehoboam the father of Abijah, and Abijah the father of Asaph, and Asaph the father of Jehoshaphat, and Jehoshaphat the father of Joram, and Joram the father of Uzziah, and Uzziah the father of Jotham, and Jotham the father of Ahaz, and Ahaz the father of Hezekiah, and Hezekiah the father of Manasseh, and Manasseh the father of Amos, and Amos the father of Josiah, and Josiah the father of Jeconiah and his brothers at the time of the deportation to Babylon. And after the deportation to Babylon, Jeconiah was the father of Shealtiel, and Shealtiel the father of Zerubbabel, and Zerubbabel the father of Abiud, and Abiud the father of Eliakim, and Eliakim the father of Azor, and Azor the father of Zadok, and Zadok the father of Achim, and Achim the father of Eliud, and Eliud the father of Eliezer, and Eliezer the father of Mathen, and Mathen the father of Jacob, and Jacob the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom Jesus was born, who is called Christ. So all the generations from Abraham to David were 14 generations, and from David to the deportation to Babylon, 14 generations. And from the deportation to Babylon to the Christ, 14 generations. You may perhaps be forgiven if your hearts were not all aflutter this morning while the new covenant reading was given in your hearings. I mean, nobody actually makes a genealogy their favorite portion of God's word. Nevertheless, if we pay close attention to the way that Matthew has structured this passage, we will find that there is a world of good news in the way that he introduces his account of the gospel. For all the promises of God find their yes and amen in Jesus Christ, our Lord. The key is not to make a detailed study of all the names in this genealogy, 
hoping to scrape out a little bit of iron ore from those names. Rather, by focusing on what Matthew wants us to focus on, we will discover buckets of gold in this passage for our spiritual lives. Matthew is introducing the Messiah as the fulfillment and as the one in whom we receive all the promised blessings that come from God. Look at verse 17 again with me. So all the generations from Abraham to David were 14 generations. And from David to the deportation to Babylon, 14 generations. And from the deportation of Babylon to the Christ, 14 generations. That threefold structure of Abraham to David, David to the Babylonian deportation, and from exile to the coming of Christ, actually structures what Matthew wants to teach us for the entire book that he is going to give us from chapter 1 all the way through chapter 28. The single big idea of this morning's passage is simply this. All the promises of God find their yes and amen in Jesus Christ, our Lord. Now, I could give you a one-point sermon, but I know some of you would feel gypped by that. And so the good news is Matthew actually breaks down this one big point into three big chunks. The promises made through Abraham are fulfilled in Jesus Christ. The promises made to and through David are fulfilled in Jesus Christ. And the promises that the Lord made to the latter prophets during the exile and after the exile, they are all fulfilled in Jesus Christ. Or quite simply, all the promises of God find their yes and amen in Jesus Christ, our Lord. There's one other marker in this passage that I want to draw your attention to And that has to do with King David. You'll have noticed that when he comes to David, he does not simply say David. He says, David, the king. Well, that's factually true, but it's more than factually true. He's going to go on to name a whole list of other people who were also kings in Israel, none of whom have that title. But by saying David, the king, he's drawing our attention to the messianic nature of the Davidic covenant. That is, as we go through the gospel according to Matthew, we're going to discover that he has a great deal to say about how Jesus fulfills the promises made in and through Abraham. And a great deal to say about the promises that the Lord has made in and through the latter prophets, all of which are fulfilled in Jesus Christ. But as a particular emphasis of Matthew's gospel, he is going to be focusing on the Davidic covenant, how the Messiah brings in the kingdom of God, And how he is the one who will reign on the throne of his father, David, forever. Before we consider these three movements of the genealogy, we should pause to consider the first verse, which serves as a heading for this morning's passage, or as I would argue, actually, from uh, the first verse of the passage all the way up through Matthew 4.11. And I just want to draw your attention to three details in this passage that I think are worth mentioning. Look at verse 1 with me. The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. And I've already pointed out how Matthew's going to focus on how God 
is fulfilling all the promises through Abraham and David and Jesus Christ. But there are three other details that I really do want to draw your attention to. First, there's the word genealogy. Um, the Greek word behind this translation is geneseos. Uh, geneseos is commonly translated three different ways in this passage. Birth, genealogy, and origin. Well, as we read through Matthew's account of the gospel, we're going to discover he says almost nothing about the birth of Jesus. You know, we often talk about it that way, but he actually doesn't talk about the birth of Jesus hardly at all. And therefore, it seems very unlikely that this book is about the birth, in that very narrow sense, of Jesus. For reasons that will become obvious in a moment, I share the view of a number of scholars who think the best way to see this is as origin rather than as genealogy. Nevertheless, I want you to keep that word geneseos in mind, or genesis in mind, because I think it's going to be helpful for you in making a connection to the book of Genesis that begins your Bibles. Just as the spoken word of God brings about the original creation, the incarnate word of God brings about new creation. And there's very much an origin story here, an origin story of Jesus Christ, yes, not most fundamentally, but also an origin story of all those who are now in Jesus Christ as new creations. The second thing I want to draw your attention to is the word book. That's yeah, one of those words you read in this passage, you just skip right over that. What in the world, book? Have you ever asked yourself, what book is he talking about? Right? The ESV says, the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ. Well, whether you think it's genealogy or origin or birth, it's pretty clear that the whole Gospel of Matthew is not about either any of those things. So Matthew is not referring in this title to his entire account of the Gospel. But correspondingly, and this is one of the problems we have with calling it a genealogy, is if you take verses 2 through 16, it is pretty hard to call those things a book. It's more of just a little piece of parchment. So here's what I think is going on. A large number of scholars throughout church history, as they've studied Matthew, have divided it into five sections, or five books. Kind of the way that the Torah of Moses is divided into five books, the Pentateuch. And so this is an introduction of the origin story that goes from verse 2 of chapter 1 all the way through verse, chapter 4, verse 11, before Jesus makes his public appearance in Israel. I think that's what's going on here. When Jesus bursts on the scene with his public ministry, the natural questions are, who is this Jesus, and where did he come from? In the first book, right, these first four chapters, or three and a half chapters, of the Gospel according to Matthew are answering that question. They're the origin story of where this Jesus comes from when he bursts on the scene. You can very easily see that as a natural connection that a first century Jew would have made when they hear the word Genesaos to the book of Genesis, which serves as the origin story for the people of Israel, who when you get to the book of Exodus, are going to be redeemed out of Egypt and brought into the promised land. Now I should tell you, you cannot... Uh, fully map Matthew onto the Torah, the Pentateuch. It won't work. 
Nevertheless, I do think that's an important idea to keep in mind because a first century Jew would have heard Genesis and thought of the book of Genesis and the origin of his people. And now Matthew is calling us to think about the origin story of Jesus Christ and the new creation that will happen through the word made flesh. The third thing I want to draw your attention to is so obvious, I'm almost embarrassed to mention it, but it is so important, I just have to. The gospel according to Matthew is about Jesus Christ. Let me say that again. The gospel according to Matthew is about Jesus Christ. It is not a new philosophy of life. It is not a new set of laws from God. It is not fundamentally God giving you insights into these dramatic things that he's going to do before Christ comes again so that you can understand history better. I mean, some of that's true. It happens along the way. But the gospel itself is about a person. It is about the word that has become flesh, about the Son of God taking to himself a true human nature so that he will usher in the kingdom. It is about how he reorganizes the people of God around his own person in the new covenant church. It is about how he redeems his people from our sins. And it is about how the risen and exalted Christ, given all authority in heaven and on earth, sends us out to disciple the nations by baptizing them and teaching them to obey everything that he has taught us. The gospel according to Matthew is about a person, the person of Jesus Christ, the Son of Man and the Son of God. We begin the body of Christ's origin story with the promises that the Messiah is the son of Abraham, the father of the faithful. Now, there are many promises that the Lord has made to and through Abraham in Genesis. And a number of those are going to show up in the gospel. But in this passage, he has one of those promises in mind. It's the very first promise he makes when he calls Abram out of Ur of the Chaldees to go to the promised land. Genesis chapter 12, beginning at verse 1. Now the Lord said to Abram, Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land I will show you, and I will make of you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great, so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse. And in you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. How do we know that this is the promise that Matthew has in mind? Well, here's how. Plain genealogies are boring. I mean, they are really boring. 39 times in this passage, we hear so-and-so fathered so-and-so. So-and-so fathered so-and-so. Or as the New King James Version puts it, Solomon begot Rehoboam. Rehoboam begot Abijah. Abijah begot Asa. Asa begot Jehoshaphat. Jehoshaphat begot Joram. And Joram begot Uzziah. And Uzziah begot Jotham. Jotham begot Ahaz. And Ahaz begot Hezekiah. And so on. Kathum, kathum, kathum. Look, there's a limit to how much you can take of that before you start nodding off to sleep. Your mind goes somewhere else. 
So why is Matthew writing like that? Well, it turns out the begats are the background rhythm. So that when he interrupts the begats, the things that stand out that are different from that jump out at us. And we say, that's what he's getting at. And principally what jumps out at us in this passage is not the men who beget, but five women. Mary is the last, but in terms of the promise to Abram, it's the first four women that matter. The other four women are all connected with Gentiles who are being grafted into the people of God. See, the unbroken line from Abraham to Jesus Christ points to the fact that God is fulfilling the promise that he's going to make Abram a great nation. But the fact that he has these four Gentile women grafted into the people of God and into the very line of the Messiah, they serve as signposts that God is also fulfilling his promise to make Abram's seed a blessing to all the nations of the earth, that the Gentiles too will be grafted in, that Christ is not just coming for ethnic Jews, He's coming to take over the world. Zartie France points out, the four mothers included in the list certainly make a strikingly unconventional group to find within the pedigree of the Messiah in Israel. Probably all four of them are non-Israelite. They're all connected to non-Israelites. It's not entirely clear whether Bathsheba was a Jew who married a Hittite or was a Hittite. I suspect it was the latter, but we can't be sure. But they're all clearly marked out as being connected to Gentiles. France continues, Tamar and Rahab were Canaanites, Ruth the Moabite, and Bathsheba the wife of a Hittite. Moreover, their stories do not fit comfortably into traditional patterns of sexual morality. Tamar's seduction of her father-in-law, Rahab's prostitution, and Bathsheba's adultery are all explicit in the Old Testament. Matthew's phrase, the wife of Uriah, rather than giving Bathsheba's name, makes this point rather obviously. Now we all today naturally think of Ruth as this godly woman who's committed to Yahweh. But we should remember we think that after she had married into Naomi's family for 10 years. After she had come to faith in Yahweh. But before that, she was a despised Moabite. Right? The Jewish people of that day hated the Moabites. And it turns out, as you read the book of Ruth, you realize that Naomi's kind of embarrassed to have Ruth go home with her. That's how she would have been seen in her own day. Now, please mark this out. I don't want you to miss this point. I am not suggesting that that stigma on these women remained on their lives. That is not the point at all. As one scholar has pointed out, in Jewish tradition, Tamar, Rahab, and Ruth were regarded as heroines, and it is David rather than Bathsheba who is stigmatized for their adultery. But I want to add something that I think is really important. That is, it's precisely the before and after nature of this picture that Matthew wants to get across to us. Matthew is trying to convey that in Christ, they are new creations, 
full and beloved members of the people of God. Yet their prominent inclusion in the messianic line reminds us that we are not to look at anybody we meet as being outside of our mission field. Right? Before they are grafted in, they would have been looked at as the people of God as being despised. They were aliens to Israel, strangers to the covenants and the promises of God, without God and without hope in this world. But God, who is rich in mercy, has grafted them in, right? calling them out of darkness into his own family. And this is moving forward to the fact that we need to see the people we meet in the same way. It has been rightly said that the Apostle Paul entered heaven to the cheers of those whom he had martyred. Beloved, that is how the gospel works. Paul was hated, then he was beloved because of Jesus Christ. That is the case with these four women as well. Two Canaanites, one married to a Hittite, and one a despised Moabite. As I say, they were by nature separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But God, who is rich in mercy, called these women out of darkness and into his marvelous light. And we know this is what Matthew's getting at, not only because of how he begins his book, but because of how he ends it. If you want to know what an author intends, it's often good to read their own conclusions. Right? The inclusion of these women in the line of the Messiah reveals that the Lord always intended to bring those who were seen as insignificant or despised in the eyes of the world and to make them full members of his family. We come to the end of the Gospel according to Matthew, and something I want to remind you of a number of times as you read through this book, it ends with the Great Commission. How does Matthew end? Jesus says, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to obey all that I have commanded you. Behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. God is faithful. Through the Lord's sovereign grace, he will multiply Abraham's offspring so that they will be like the stars of heaven and like the sand along the seashore. And through his seed, all the nations of the earth will be blessed. Matthew is telling us the Lord will be faithful to fulfill every promise that he has made to Abraham, and all these promises are fulfilled in Jesus Christ. And he wants us to know that he will fulfill all the promises he has made to and through David as well. In the case of David, the central promise is easy to identify. Uh, Matthew must have the Davidic covenant in mind. And you know the story. In fact, that was our old covenant reading this morning. Uh, rather late in life, you know, David's living really well. He's living in a palace. And he looks out and sees that the Ark of the Covenant, which represents the true king of the universe, is, is in a tent. And, and he realized, that can't be right. 
And he has a desire to build a temple to the Lord, a palace that would honor God as the king of Israel, as the king of the world. And so he tells that to Nathan, and you know um, Nathan's a faithful prophet in many ways, but when David tells him this, he does not consult with the Lord. Oops. Right? Nathan says, go and do what's in your heart. But that very night, the Lord says, no, go tell David this. And he begins by recounting the ways that as the Lord, he's just traveled around in the midst of his people. He has not been looking for his people to build a palace for him. That was not God's goal. It was rather to build a people. And then he talks about how he's delivered David over and over again, how he's always been with him. And then with a play on words, he says, David, you will not build a house for me. I will build a house that is a dynasty for you. Now, some of this starts to get fulfilled in Solomon, his son. But the key thing about the Davidic covenant is found in verse 16 of our old covenant passage. Twice in that passage, he says, and your kingdom, your throne, will be established forever. That is fulfilled in Jesus Christ. And so when we come to the middle of chapter 4 of Matthew, and we ask, who is this astonishing rabbi who will burst on the scene? He is the King of kings and the Lord of lords. He will rule from the river to the ends of the earth on the throne of his father David, henceforth, even forevermore. Matthew is signaling that all the promises the Lord made to and through Abraham are going to be fulfilled in Jesus Christ, and all the promises that the Lord made to and through David are going to be fulfilled in Jesus Christ as well. Nevertheless, there's one more third to the genealogy, and it's actually the third that we tend to pay not a lot of attention to. It's the period from the Babylonian exile up until the coming of Christ. After centuries of unfaithfulness, where the rich in Israel had abused the poor, where many people approached religion really as a matter of show, uh, sometimes even as a means of making a profit, where many people in Israel went after pagan gods and worshipped the Baals and the Ashtoreths, God brought judgment. It was a horrendous judgment. He had the Babylonians wipe out Jerusalem and the temple, and he deported the people. And you got to think about how long that period takes place. That's something I really want to make sure you get in your minds this morning. Because I've discovered Christians tend to go, you know, there's only two verses in my Bible, so it must have happened really quickly. Roughly speaking, David becomes king in 1000 B.C. So from 1000 B.C. to the destruction of the temple in 586 is 414 years. That is a really long time for an unbroken line to be on the throne of any nation. But from 586 B.C. to the coming of Christ, maybe 4 B.C. or so, right? We have over 580 years. It's 170 years longer than the Davidic line had been on the throne. And there are all these Jews looking back at 2 Samuel 7 going, God said, this kingdom will be established forever. There will be a king on David's throne forever. And they're asking, where is he? They're longing for him to show up. Remember, through this whole period of time, they're after the, under the thumb of one pagan ruler after another. Right? The Babylonians, the Persians, the Greeks, the Romans. 
They hated it. They were looking for a deliverer. They were looking for God to fulfill this promise. So it turns out, actually, that absence in this case made the heart grow fonder. We don't actually get a new, distinctly different promise in this period. What we do get instead is an intensified desire for the coming Davidic king who will establish his kingdom, throw off the pagan rule, and who will, in fact, rule forever. Regrettably, there are so many passages um, that point to this, I wouldn't even try to talk about that this morning uh, because it would take me days to go through it. I'm just going to give you a couple of passages. And since we just finished our study of Zechariah on Thursday night, let me mention Zechariah. Zechariah is a post-exilic prophet. right? That's after the small remnant returns from Babylon. They're trying to rebuild the temple there in Jerusalem. And Zechariah is filled with prophecies about the coming Messiah. For example, Zechariah predicts that the people reject the good shepherd when he comes. Boy, that must have been hard news, right? We're longing for this Davidic king to come, and Zechariah says, you know what? When he comes, you're not going to embrace him. You're going to reject him. Uh, Zechariah says, strike the shepherd, and the sheep will be scattered. He, He says that those who are turned by God's grace to come to faith in this Messiah afterwards... They will look upon him whom they have pierced, and they will mourn. Or consider this famous prophecy from Zechariah. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. Righteous and having salvation is he. Humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of the donkey. You'll recognize that, of course, from Holy Week, the last week in Jesus' life, which is largely structured in the three synoptic Gospels around Zechariah's messianic prophecies. What I want you to see is Zechariah doesn't water down the promises. He takes them at face value, and he tells the whole story. He doesn't announce a coming Messiah who's going to bring relief and a bit of joy to this tiny people in this little strip of land in the Middle East. Rather, it is Zechariah who says that when the Messiah comes, he will rule from sea to sea, from the river to the ends of the earth. Those promises are beautiful. But they are so different from what the Jews were experiencing during this period. How could they possibly reconcile their day-to-day experience of life with the clear promises of the word of God. By the way, even on this side of the cross and the empty tomb, even on this side of Pentecost, you all have to deal with that. You're reading these wonderful things that God is saying that he has promised to those who love him, right? That that you will be raised incorruptible and glorified. You will see Christ face to face. But you're not there yet. How do you live with the promises when your life feels so different? It doesn't just feel, your life is so different. Well, consider what the Lord tells Habakkuk. The Lord says to Habakkuk, the just shall live by faith. That is, you take God's word as being more important than your experiences. You interpret your experiences in light of what God says and you hold on to his promises. The just 
shall live by faith. Habakkuk is wrestling with the reality that the Lord was bringing horrible judgment upon Israel at the hands of the Babylonians. And the Lord doesn't try to negotiate down his promise, as though Habakkuk and all the faithful should somehow just learn to appreciate the blessings they have in their life already. And you know, those things that God is doing quietly in your heart. I sometimes hear Christians today talk like that. That is not what the Lord says to Habakkuk. The Lord does tell Habakkuk that the just will live by faith, but then he also declares to Habakkuk that the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord, even as the water covers the sea. He does not back down. And then after 480 years without a Davidic king, and after 400 years of prophetic silence, the Lord sends a messenger before his face, just as he promised to the prophet Malachi, right, the very last book in the Christian Bible. And after this messenger, John the Baptist was arrested, Jesus himself came into Galilee proclaiming the gospel of God and saying, the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of his God is at hand. Repent and believe the gospel. Beloved, Matthew is telling us that Jesus was not merely preaching the gospel. Matthew was telling us that Jesus is the gospel. All the promises of God, every single one of them, are yes and amen in Christ Jesus our Lord. All the promises that the Lord made to and through Abraham are fulfilled in him. All the promises that the Lord made to and through David are fulfilled in Jesus Christ. And all the promises that the Lord made about the coming Messiah around and after the Babylonian exile, they all find their fulfillment in Jesus Christ. See, Matthew has carefully structured this genealogy to introduce us to the greatest news that can ever be told. All the promises of God find their yes and amen in Jesus Christ, And this Christ has come. We are so easily distracted from that truth. So Matthew, as it is, is shouting down through the corridors of time to us. He's telling us that the great turning point in history will not take place on Wall Street or in Washington, D.C. It did not take place in Caesar's courts or in the palace of any king the pivot point upon which all of history turns, takes place in a virgin's womb and in the little town of Bethlehem. For unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given, and the government will be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and peace, There will be no end upon the throne of his father David and over his kingdom to order it and establish it with judgment and justice from this time forth and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will accomplish this. Praise be to God. Amen.